Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back. If you were traveling and hopefully you had a, a great time with family uh, as you got to see them. Some people, it might have been hard. If it was hard for you, then uh, know that you were prayed for. Um, we prayed for a lot of folks that we knew it would be a difficult season for them. Um, and uh, we're getting ready to launch in the book of Malachi uh, for the next several weeks. And I uh, would encourage you again to read through that book, to get familiar with it um, as, we, as we get ready to go. Um, the book of Malachi, uh, if you know any background to where we find ourselves in the story, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, you have to kind of back the story up because the book of Malachi is kind of the last telling to his people, to the people of Israel, last reminder of the covenants that he made. The next story we have after the book of Malachi, the next thing we see is the arrival of John the Baptist. The next prophet, the next big thing is the arrival of John the Baptist, which Malachi says would happen. Like, like it, it lays it out for us to see that there's 400 years between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, roughly. 400 years of silence is what we say. Like there was no scripture written. It doesn't mean God wasn't working. It doesn't mean that God didn't already write enough down for them to work on for 400 years. They already had all the information they needed to work on their lives. They had plenty of info. But for 400 years, it's like this period of like there's not any new scripture. And you have to remember as we back up this book, you have to remember that God made a covenant. He created mankind and made a covenant with mankind. He put them on the earth, in the garden, in a perfect setting. And, and the only condition was the covenant that they, is, was that they couldn't eat a certain plant. Right? So there's people who say that we shouldn't outlaw plants. Like marijuana should be legal for everyone. It's like, well, you realize that was God's first law, right? Like the first law God made was to outlaw a plant. I think that's kind of ironic in our culture today. And he said, don't eat of this. You can have anything else you want, just don't eat of this. And we knew, God knew too, that man would not listen to that. But he created man anyway. And man brought a curse. And then God said, I would bring a seed. I'm going to bring a Messiah, a Savior, a seed from woman who will be the Savior of the world. And he said, I'm going to do it. He didn't say, you're going to do it. He said, I'm going to bring a seed. I'm going to make it happen. And from that point on, the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of that. When Noah happens, it's God wiping out the earth and keeping a seed of Noah and his family to restart. You see Abraham and the covenant with Abraham where God says, I'm going to use you and your family line to be this, where I bring the seed. Then we see Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, his 12 sons. Then they get enslaved in Egypt, and God delivers them in the book of Exodus through Moses, and then Joshua takes them into the earthly promised land, not the ultimate promised land, and then you see David rise up to be their king when God said, I wanted to be a king, but I'll allow you to have a king, but it's going to be my king, because they tried to get their own king, and then we see the prophets that come and warn the people that you need to turn back to God, you need to go back to his original covenant and repent, and, and to tell him that you love him. And where we find ourselves in the book of Malachi is this is a hundred years after the Jews had returned to Jerusalem from the 70 years of exile. So the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, others, had prophesied that they were going to go into captivity because of their sin. They were living in prosperity. Things seemed to be going well. Seemed, things seemed to be going okay. And the prophets were like, it's not going to be okay. You become complacent. You're not surrendered to God. You're not doing his laws, his statutes, and his ordinances. Your heart isn't right before him. And he's going to allow a foreign nation to come in. And he's going to use that foreign nation to discipline you. And in the northern kingdom, he used Assyria. In the southern kingdom, he used Babylon. And Jeremiah was the prophet who said that in 70 years, you would return. And that actually happened. This is also 80 years after the temple was rebuilt. So they've had the temple They've been in their land, they've had the temple for 80 years, and it's probably roughly about 10 years after Nehemiah had refinished building the walls around Jerusalem. So here the people of God are in the book of Malachi. Think about our country right now. This was their nation. This was their country. You have a temple, your walls are rebuilt, you're no longer fully in captivity, you, you have a friendliness with the government that you're still under, you're living in the promised land, 
but things still aren't grand. They're not great. There's still a struggle. There's still a battle. You're still kind of under a mess. And the people are in the midst of that. And Malachi marks the beginning of him coming in and God reminding his people something very important. It's something that you and I have got to be reminded of, especially in the times we live in. Here's what he reminds them. God sends them a little text, right? And he says, I love and don't change. In Malachi 1, in Malachi 1, 2, God says, I love. And the word there in the Hebrew means an everlasting love. It's a, it's a I love not like you, not like anyone else, not like anything you've seen. I love all the way back to Genesis when I created you, knew you were going to sin, and I still created you. That's how much I loved you. But that's how much I desired to have people to have a relationship with. Even though I didn't need to because there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God says, I love, and then he reminds them, I don't change. My definition of love and my definition of truth and grace doesn't change even in the midst of a broken world. Everything, listen to me, everything written in the book of Malachi is about love, all of it. The entire book. God says, I am trying to communicate to you that I am motivated by love. Here's the problem, though. God's motivated by his love, by by proper love, by his definition of love, not ours. And God's definition of love is very different than ours, very different. And we live in a world today, you know this, that the, the word love and what is love and isn't love is being redefined all the time. Listen, we... We are only steps away from people being able to marry their pets. Just being honest with you. You think, oh, that can't happen, really. We are steps away from saying, love is love. Whatever you believe love is, you can do it. And we can't can't speak out against that. Listen, there's no way to build anything on that. That is so broken because it means that, and I've said this before, it means if my definition of love is running around punching people in the face, then you can't judge me for that. And so when I greet you on a Sunday morning and I reach for a, you reach for a handshake and I slug you and say I love you and then walk to the next person, slug them and say I love you, you go, well, that's just Matt. That's, that's how he expresses love. Isn't that wonderful? You'd be like, no. You can't just slug people. Why not? It's how... It's how, if you hit me, I'll be a Christian. Boom, I feel great, thanks. Man, this reminds me, growing up, boxing with my dad, thanks, I feel so loved right now. You laugh. You laugh at that, but that's really the world we live in where whatever definition I come up with, and God in the book of Malachi is saying, I love you, and I want to remind you, the love that I've expressed to you for thousands of years hasn't changed. My definition of love and what that looks like hasn't changed, and I'm going to remind you of that, and I want to show you that. You see, the book of John, 1 John 4, says God is love. In Malachi's book, he uses 24 times a phrase. Here's the phrase he uses. It's Yahweh Sabaoth, okay, which means Lord of hosts. But in the original language, the word Lord, when it's capitalized, when you see that in your Bible, is Yahweh. It's his original name he gave himself. So he's saying, I, Yahweh, the the God who loves you, the the God who gave a name that you could call me, like we can have a relationship. I gave you my name so that we could like talk to one another. That God is Sabaoth. What that means or what host means is Lord of the armies of heaven. I don't know if that's encouraging to you or scary, but that's kind of a weird phrase. If you're going to say love, and then you're going to say, I am Yahweh, Sab- I, I, am, I am God on high who was and is and is to come, and I got armies that I am holding back because I love you. Uh, oh, it doesn't seem very loving. I want somebody that doesn't have any armies. Like, like until you start thinking about it, and then you go, no, wait a minute, If I love someone that has no desire to protect me, 
that has no desire to protect the ones he loves or she loves and has no desire to protect other people, then that's not a good person to love. That's not a caring person. And so the the Lord uses his name and he refers to himself as the armies he commands. And he says that's love. See, we have people running around trying to change the definition. In Malachi, God makes the clear case that love is is, is a lot of math. Love is just a lot of math. It just adds up. And either your choices add up to show that you truly love God or your choices add up to show that you hate him, that you use him. See, it's not works-based. It's not, well, I'll show God. It's my heart is for God, and so my choices just follow the heart I have. It's not I'm going to try to make a new heart. And so, and if we know this, there was recently a teacher right after Columbine a few years ago who figured out that the common denominator among much of our school shootings that we see, there's some common math among these students that do school shootings. The math typically means they're distant from their parents. There's a distance in the home. They don't sit down and do math together like with their time by eating dinner together. They're distant from their peers. She began to look at the patterns and began to say, you know, maybe I could change this as an elementary school teacher if I started seeing those patterns and tried to engage that lonely student. If I tried to talk about this in our class, if I tried to to get a hold of the math early so that the outcome wasn't a high school student killing his peers. She laid all this out and found these patterns See, we know there are patterns in our culture. You know that in your home. There are patterns that that express love, and there are patterns that say, I don't care about you. And that's what God is laying out in the book of Malachi. And so God says, I love and don't change. But then, today's message, here's the question. Here's the question that God's people ask back. They text back and they say, how have you loved us? I want you to think about that for a minute. You're sitting down with someone you truly care about, that you've given everything for. You created a world for them, a universe for them. You've you've given them life and breath. You've, You've given them children. You've given them resources. You've cared for them. When you are the Lord that's holding back his wrath and his armies, which should come to destroy because of how wicked we are, we have the audacity to look back at him and say, How have you loved us? This was their moment of worship. And instead, they got a question. God got a question. See, God God doesn't love me because of who I am. He loves me because of who he is. And that should encourage us because we live in a culture that's desperate for love. You see, we love God when our circumstances are what we want them to be. And we look at God and the circumstances they're in aren't exactly the circumstances they want. And so they look around them and they say, you don't love me, God. My circumstances prove that. God's like, what? Weren't there people before you? Isn't there an entire book that talks about bad circumstances in a broken world? And you're going to look at me and say, I don't love just because your circumstances are what they are? That's not the definition of love. Somebody's messed you up. And he looks. So let's jump in. Malachi 1. An oracle. An oracle is simply a person through whom a deity speaks. That's what the word oracle means. It's it's someone speaking on behalf of a deity. In this case, on behalf of Yahweh, Malachi is speaking on behalf of him. We don't know much about Malachi. We, We don't really have any information about who he was, where he came from. It's just he spoke on behalf of of Yahweh, our God. And this says, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. The word of the Lord means it's not an opinion. It's his word. This wasn't Malachi giving an opinion about God's word. This was Malachi giving God's word. 
Like he's telling the people, this is exactly what God is saying to you. And the whole book, listen to this, the whole book is structured like a text message back and forth, a long text message, but there are those annoying ones that I send. But you know what I mean? Like, Like that's what the book is structured like. It's this conversation God is having with people. He says, Malachi, the name Malachi simply means my messenger. He's willing to give the message of truth that I've asked him to give. He's gonna tell it like it is. Because he knows that that's what love is. And, and Israel, you have to remember, the name Israel means to struggle with God. The name Israel means it's a struggle, and here's the other part of that struggle, yet God still saves. That's kind of the, the name Israel has this connotation of, I struggle with God, yet he still allows me to live. He still saves me. He still cares for me. He still loves me. That's the connotation. That was Jacob wrestling with God, God wounding in his hip, and then saying, I could have killed you, I could have brought down armies, and I chose to wrestle with you one-on-one, and instead I'm just going to give you a little limp and change your name to Israel. You struggle with me, and I let you live. I saved you, and I'm going to use you. Listen, that should be encouraging to us, because that's you and me. We struggle with God, we look at our circumstances, we look around, and we wonder, well, why is this that way, and why this, and why that, and why And God is there wanting to struggle with us. Not to hurt us, not to kill us. He's holding back the armies, but to kind of maybe give us a little bit of a wound so we remember, right? A little bit of a consequence. It kind of, whoa, I remember, ooh. Yeah, like you look at a scar, man. Oh, look what happened to me. And you show your friends for decades. I did this. This is what happened. And like you brag about it. It's the same thing. And he says, basically, this is a word from Yahweh to those that struggle with God And I've been saved by God. I love with an everlasting love and I don't change. Listen, God fulfills promises. He doesn't change. There's a difference. When you fulfill something, then you've you've done your job, it's over. There's no longer a need to work on it because the job has been complete, right? Like it's done, the product's out, we're done. We, We back off. God fulfills things. He doesn't change and in this context, he's looking at his people, you and me, and he says, we change, we go back and forth without fulfilling our obligation. Without fulfilling our obligation, and he does not. And that's why he wrote this book down. So he says, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel, to my people, through a messenger, Malachi, look, I have loved you. Okay? You can just hear his heart. Man, I, I, have, I have loved you. And the response back. But you ask, how have we loved you? In other words, they had the wrong definition of love. They couldn't see that what God had done in the past was loving. That the circumstances they were in was loving. I mean, at best, maybe they were just clueless. Maybe there were people who hadn't been taught about God's love, and they were just clueless, and they're like, I don't, you've loved us. Like, I, I never really thought of it that way. I thought of you as like this far off to distant deity who's, who like, you know, is going to get me, and, and you're on high, and I got to try to please you so you don't like send lightning bolts down and get me. Maybe there's clueless people who ask this question, right? Like, like. I don't know how God has loved me. My life's a wreck and all these things. But in this context, there were the majority of what we see about this book is that they're attacking God. They're not just clueless. They're saying, if you really loved us, then this is what you would do. And you see this in relationships all the time where people say, you don't love me the way I want, so that means you don't love me. We even have books. We write books that encourage that kind of thought process. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that to us? Aren't you glad God just doesn't say, I'm done with you because, you know, forget it. No, he keeps giving us opportunities, sending prophets, sending messengers, giving us his word because that's how he loves. Then he goes on, and all of a sudden this weird conversation happens. And if you don't know a little bit of history, this is going to seem like a really weird conversation because when they ask the question, how have you loved us? God gives a very specific example. Here's what he says. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. 
I turned his mountains, that's Esau's mountains, into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. There's a, there's a term that people say, you know, love this sinner, hate the sin. In this context, that's exactly what God's saying. When you look at the Hebrew word for hate there, he's not talking about like he made a choice and I'm going to hate Esau and that's just it and, and I just curse him and that's just the way he's going to be. And God backs that up when what we see with Esau all the way through. That Esau, after given opportunity after opportunity to repent, opportunity after opportunity to submit to God's declaration, we're going to look at in a minute, he won't. He will not turn. Because he says, that's not the way I think things should work. That's not the way I think that, things, that love looks like. And so here you have this, and he said, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. And to this day, the land where Esau owned is, is a desert. You can go there and see the ruins of Esau's people, the Edomites. That God kept his promise that Esau's land is destroyed. And so you might ask yourself, man, how can I love a God that says he hates? God says he hates a lot of things. In the book of Malachi, he's going to talk about some things he hates. God doesn't mince words about what he loves and what he hates. He's pretty clear on it. And he often tells us why he hates it so that we're not unaware. You see, here's the story of what happened. In Genesis 21, 25, 21, you have Isaac. This is Abraham's son. This is the son that God miraculously gave to two old people, Abraham and Sarah, right? She was 90. This is Isaac, the promised son. If you remember, there was another son. Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands with Hagar, his maidservant, because God wasn't loving them. He wasn't doing fast enough what they thought should happen, and they thought we need to create for ourselves in our own works, in our own effort, a solution to our problem of not being able to have children. Isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that that's what we do? We want to create a solution that works as fast as possible, Versus waiting on God, crying out to him. Oh, and by the way, this week, this week, a bomb was dropped in Iraq because of the war between Ishmael and Isaac is still happening. Iran traces their lineage back to Ishmael. Islam traces their lineage back to Ishmael. He is the promised child. He is the one that should be on high. And any nation, any people, anyone who thinks Judeo-Christian, Isaac is the promised child, is to be annihilated and wiped off the planet. We are still fighting a war because God doesn't change. His promises don't change. We're still fighting. We're still panicking over the same stuff because God doesn't change. He told Abraham, that wasn't loving. Don't do that. He did it anyway. As a result, we're still at war today. And we see this happening again. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Interesting that Abraham and Sarah were childless. And now Isaac is experiencing the same thing. But... To Isaac's credit, he probably saw the mess that happened with his dad, so he didn't take matters into his own hands. He just cried out to God. And it says, the Lord heard his prayer. Now, God might hear your prayer. You may be in rough circumstances and feel like God doesn't, why doesn't he care? And the love, listen, you may be in those circumstances. God has one of three answers, no, yes, and wait. Those are God's three answers. He either says no, yes, or wait. You pray, he says no, yes, or wait. In this circumstance, he was praying. He probably didn't just pray once. This was probably a prayer he prayed a lot, and God kept telling him, wait, wait, wait. I'll fulfill my promise. Wait, wait. And finally, he goes, okay, yes. And he gives Rebecca a child, but the child inside her struggled. The children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, why is this happening to me? You ever ask that? You're in the midst of a struggle, and you go, why is this happening to me? Because we live in a world of struggle. Our Savior didn't come from heaven to earth and like live in a palace and have an easy life. He struggled. From the time he was born, he was placed in a manger, had to flee to Egypt. I mean, you read the story, you're like, his life was a mess. 
It was just a struggle, yes. And on the cross, he struggled for us and then came back to life to prove that he was who he says he was and then he asked his followers to struggle. So it's, a, it's not a wrong question to ask, why is this happening to me? And then look, so she went to inquire of the Lord. I love this. I love that Isaac inquires from the Lord and she's praying and inquiring from the Lord. She goes to the Lord with it and says, man, I'm good. These two kids, I mean, can you imagine, you know, there's different women have different experiences in pregnancy. I don't know what this was like, but can you imagine like these two kids like fighting in the womb? Like, bam, bam. I mean, you're just like, you know, I, I mean, that's literally the connotation here. And you know that when kids fight in the womb, they kick other things in there, like your liver, your bladder, your bowels. Like, it's not a pretty picture. She was probably miserable from this, wondering if she was going to survive. Are these kids going to kill me inside? That's literally what's going on here. She probably had to carry him to full term, too. Sometimes with twins, they'll take it early because, you know, no, she's, this is, these two kids from the beginning were fighting. And look at what he says. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Remember, the promise to Abraham was, I'm a God who loves, I fulfill my promises. I told Abraham I would make him a man of many nations. Many nations would come from him. Guess what? I'm fulfilling that promise. There's two nations in you. And he says, two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's not the way it's supposed to work. In this culture and in this time, it's the older who gets the rights. They get the land. They get everything. For God to tell Rebecca the younger is going to serve or the older is going to serve the younger was radical. And listen, Isaac would not have liked that idea. You want to know why? Because Isaac had to live with the sin of his father being the younger brother, knowing that Ishmael was the first one his whole life. This would not have been a good thing for Isaac to hear. He would not have liked to hear it was going to go down this way because in his mind, we're going to do it the right way, not like my dad did it, and my first son is going to get everything because that's the way it's supposed to go down. And that's why we see the next part happen. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. We struggle with this today. One of the biggest complaints about the generation coming up is they're snowflakes, they're weak. They're... We love the rugged man. We love the hunter, the expert, to go out and kill it and bring it home. Like, oh, that guy, he's something. What about Jacob, who's at home? He's gardening, feeding his family, raising flocks. See, Esau didn't raise flocks. He didn't have time for that. He just goes out and finds what he needs and kills it. No, Jacob stays home to make sure everyone's taken care of, to provide, to trust God, to plant the seed, to see the seed grow, to give praise. That's Jacob. While Esau's just like, well, when I'm hungry, I just got to kill something, bring it home. And then look at what it says. Isaac loved Esau because Isaac had a taste for wild game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved what he could get from Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob because she knew the promise of God was on him. I see this all the time in relationships. People who fall in love with Esau's. They don't look for the, the man or the woman who is blessed by God, who's under God's authority, who's under the household, who submits and cares for people. No, they want the rugged, look at him, he's a powerful, wow, that's the guy I want, that's the gal I want. Would you independent and be careful? Be careful. There is a family war going on. Listen, we just got done with family holidays. You may have this kind of stuff going on in your house. It's been going on forever. All the way back to Abraham, this kind of stuff goes down. Now listen, all Isaac and Rebekah had to do was to teach Esau and Isaac, or Esau and Jacob, hey, your mom had a word from God. I trust your mom. I know she walks with the Lord. We try to walk to the Lord together. I just want you to know, Esau, you don't get the birthright. You don't get the goods. Jacob's going to get it because that's what God told your mom, and that's what we're going to do, son. That's not what happened. 
Once when Jacob was cooking his stew, Esau came from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That's why he was also named Edom, which means red. That's why they became the Edomites. Okay? It goes on and it says this. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. What? How did Esau have the birthright? Who told Esau he got the birthright? Before they were born, God said, Jacob has the birthright. Who told him he had it? Daddy. Daddy created a war in his home. Stood up to God. I'm not going to do what God says, even though that's supposedly the loving thing, and God loved us enough to give us a kid. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to do it my way. My way is Esau gets the birthright, and Esau's going to know it, Jacob's going to know it. And Jacob knows what mom's told him. Jacob, I'm telling you, your dad's wrong. He's wrong. God told me in the womb. I told him he won't listen. Be in that marriage your whole life till you die because you're committed like God is to love and not change. It's exactly what's going on here. And then he says, look, Esau said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob longs for the blessing of God. He longs for the truth of God. He longs, and Esau's like, I don't really care. I'm just trying to get through life. I'm just trying to do my thing, like however it works out. And then Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him for a pot of red stew. The birthright of why we sit here today. The birthright of the son of God, Jesus, coming into the world. Esau's like, "Ah, it's not that big of a deal. I, I do what I want. It's this relationship with God thing, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just want to go out and do my thing. I, I worship God in the woods. That's what I do. You know, some people, they want to be at home. They want to worship with other people. But me, I go out and worship in the woods. That's, that. You think we have new problems? We don't. They're the same ones that have been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He goes on and he says, so Esau, and it says, then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. We see from the beginning there is a mess here because people won't listen to God. They will not listen. I've already decided how it's going to go. I've already made up my mind. I don't care what God has to say. This is what I'm going to do. Not working out well for me. Circumstances prove God doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. If he loved me, if he loved our church, then things would be different. It'd be this, it'd be that. So so I'm just going to do what I'm... It's exactly what's going on here. And it's the same stuff we deal with. Then he goes on, look at this. But he replied, later what happens? Jacob realizes that he has the birthright because Esau sold it to him, but he doesn't have the blessing of his father. He knows he needs the blessing of his father with the birthright. It's not just enough to, to say you have the birthright. You need the blessing of the father. And so Jacob and his mom hatched this idea where Jacob's going to dress up like Esau. He's going to put on camel hair because Esau was a really hairy guy, right? Most of you are like, that's why I wouldn't marry Esau right there. Anyway, so Esau's like a hairy guy. And so he puts on camel hair. He goes in. Like, they trick him because Jacob can't see anymore. And you can read this story And Jacob blesses, or Isaac blesses Jacob thinking it's Esau. Esau comes in from the field and says, Father, I'm here. And Jacob panics and realizes, oh my goodness, I just gave the blessing to my younger son when I wanted to give it to you. In other words, God made me obey even when I didn't want to. Even in the corruption in my own home and the mess in my own home, God found a way to get us to obey him when we didn't even want to. And then it says, when Esau found this out, but he replied, Jacob replied, your brother came and deceitfully took your blessing. So he said, isn't he rightly named Jacob or deceiver? For he has cheated me twice now. Did did Jacob cheat him twice? No. No. There was a very good business deal, and Esau did a bad business deal. <laughs> like, no soup for you, right? Like, that's, he said, no soup for me. I want soup. Okay, great. Then give me your birthright. Like, there was a, there was, he didn't deceive him. He looked at him and said, you hungry? Great. Sell me your birthright. Fine. Here, take it. 
He's a liar. Esau is a cheat. He's selfish. He lies. He's... He goes on and it says, he took my birthright and look, now he has taken my blessing. Whose birthright and blessing was it in the first place? God's. He decides who gets the birthright and blessing. Not us. He decides what we're going to have and not have. What our time, talent, treasures, and testimonies are going to be. Not us. We don't decide that. He does. And he's looking and Esau's saying, look at all. Esau, you don't even believe God's in control, do you? He looks and then he asked, haven't you saved a blessing for me? Jacob in his pain and in his sorrow doesn't have one for him. At least that's what it looks like. Until you realize that all the way through Esau's life, God continually tries to get him to repent. Continually tries to love him, to let him grow up as a nation. He doesn't kill him right here. He withholds his armies, tries to warn him, tries to warn his family members and warn his people. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Malachi in this exchange. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because the blessing of his father had given, had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching because Isaac had died. Then, he, then I will kill my brother. And this is where Jacob has to flee for his life. And that's where Jacob begins to learn to trust God when he's on his own, when he wants to be at home but can't be. And his circumstances are a mess and he made him a mess. And it's just a disaster. And God gets a hold of his heart and transforms him. And maybe that's where you're at right now feel like you're wandering, you feel like the circumstances of your life aren't working out, and God wants to say, I've loved you. You're still alive, aren't you? <laughs> I'm taking care of you. You're here. You, you ate something today. Like, I'm, I love you. It goes on in Malachi, and it says this, though Edom says we've been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says this. They may, re, may build, but I will demolish they will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. You see, we look at this and we say, wow, that's terrible that God would do this. No, he's saying, look, you admit you're devastated. We've been devastated. You admit your circumstances are a mess and you're broken, but your solution is what? I'm gonna do this. I'm going to rebuild this. I'll show you, God. I'll show my brother Jacob. I'll show everybody I can do this. I'll, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll make this happen. I'll prove to you. Versus falling on your face before God and saying, God, I'm devastated. I got nothing. I'm nothing if I don't have your blessing. I, I'm nothing without you. I recognize that I'm worse than Jacob. At least Jacob recognized he needed your blessing. He needed it. I don't need anybody, I don't want anybody, and I don't want to have that life anymore. God, forgive me. See, Malachi is reaching out to, while he's speaking to Israel in this moment, God is lovingly reaching out to Edom. He's lovingly reaching out to Esau's family and saying, repent, come back, believe in me. Stop living so distant and hateful and bitter. Come back to me. And they say, no way. No and God says, then all I have is a curse. Listen, we know this. That's what God says about our faith. That either you submit to God, you surrender to his plan for salvation, you surrender to his authority and the person, his Messiah, and the way he's going to save things. You either surrender to that, or you're going to be cursed forever in hell. That's not what I say, that's what Jesus said. Like, this is the same gospel we believe. And so you look at that and go, wow, he cursed him forever. That's just so terrible. No, it's the truth. And God, listen, because he loves us so much, tells us the truth always. He never lies to us. He never tries to manipulate us. He just tells it like it is because he loves us. He cares for us too much not to tell us, not to warn us, not to help us. And when we get it, he loves us enough to say, now that you get it, I'm not going to send my armies, my hosts, I want to raise you up. I'm going to resurrect you. I'm going to give you new life. That's the beauty of our God. See, everything we try to rebuild in our own strength is works-based, works -based, not grace-surrender-based. 
It's exactly what we see. In Malachi 1.6, God goes on. I skipped verse 5. That was intentional. In Malachi 1.6, it says this. Because remember, he's talking about Esau and Jacob. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord, or says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Again, God looks at them and he says, where's my honor? If, if you really are my children, then where's your honor of me? Where's your gratitude? Where's your thanks? Where's your humility? I don't, I don't see that. If, if you really see me as the master of the world and, and the universe, where's your, where's your fear of me? That You go, oh, man, you have all power. Thank you for not taking that out on me. Thank you for putting it on Christ on the cross. Like, where is that reverence and awe and worship, he says. He says, look, you ask how, how have I loved you? I explain it. Then you say, I'll do it on my own, thank you very much. And then God comes back and says, well, then you're not my child. Then you don't know me. Then you're cursed. You don't have the blessing or the birthright. You despise me. You hate me. And I can't do anything but, but have hate in return until you submit to me. Like, I, I don't know what else to do. See, God didn't like hate Esau just because he picked Esau and said, I hate you. That's not what happened. He knew Esau was going to hate him the whole time. The only good decision we have in Scripture of Esau was when his brother comes back, Esau actually embraces and forgives his brother for a moment. That is the only good thing in Scripture we see about Esau. The only one. But his descendants, Esau had already done damage, the damage in the descendants that he raised. The descendants he raised had hatred and bitterness. And even though they saw Esau love Jacob in their hearts, they were looking at that and going, what an idiot. I'm not going to be taken advantage of like that. You should step up for yourself, grandpa, great-grandpa, dad. Don't let Jacob have. You should be killing him right now. You told us you were going to kill him. You told us those stories. When Jacob's coming up with a limp to his brother, and he sees him broken down, Esau has a moment of compassion. But he had already done the damage in his family to cause the bitterness and the corruption to spread. And they killed each other for years after this and during this and before this. And it goes on and it says this. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, daughter of Barry and the Hittite, and Bazmath, daughter of Elion the Hittite, and they made life bitter. For Isaac and Rebekah. You see, a son would honor his father by asking, who, who do you want me to marry? What do you think, dad? What? A, a servant, before he would marry, would ask his master, hey, I'm thinking about getting married and I'm going to need time off. And like, what does this look like? I was just checking in with you, not Esau. Esau's going to love who he wants to love, where he wants to love, how he wants to love, as many as he wants to love. Again, it shows Esau's hatred for the things of God. He doesn't want to do it God's way. He doesn't want to do it how God says it should be done. He isn't a good son. He is not a servant of the master. He isn't. And yet Jacob is struggling to be one, constantly struggling to want to obey God, to want to do the right thing and, and messing up and God's still having mercy on him, but always coming back to God himself because he knows that God loves him. He was raised to know that. He knew he needed the honor. Romans 9, Paul talks about this whole exchange. In Romans 9, 11, he's talking about this exact thing, Esau and Jacob. This was such a significant event in the Bible. That's why Malachi uses it. That's why Paul uses it in Romans. He says, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I love Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should then we, or what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. And Esau proved that God wasn't unjust by his actions. 
See, someday you're going to stand before God. And, and before the judgment seat of God, as believers, we get passed by the ultimate judgment, heaven and hell, but then we're judged on our works as believers, the second judgment. For non-believers, they stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to stand before him, and Jesus said this in the scriptures, and they're going to say, look at everything I did for you. Look at I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and, I, and Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. I've not put my blessing on you. Department from me, he says. Paul's writing and he's saying, look, God said originally this is how it would be. And then we have the audacity to say there's injustice with God. He doesn't love us. He's unjust. He's not right. He's wrong. What? How does the pot or the clay get to tell the potter who he should be and how, she, how life should work? And yet that's what we've been trained to do in our culture. We got people running around telling people to pray prayers, to demand things from God, to make it happen. You can pray and make God work and do what you want. Listen, God wants your prayers. He wants to hear from you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to be honest about what you want. But he also wants you to accept his answers. Because he is a great dad and he's a great master. He looks and he says, absolutely not. God's not unjust. It's not about us working it out. It's what God has done. It's what he chooses to do. But Israel pursuing the law for righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They started living like Esau. They, they, they turned they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Jesus. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion. I'm going to make this so clear how to have a relationship with me. I'm going to make this so clear how to have my blessing. I'm going to make this so clear to you. And a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. You'll be loved. You won't be put to shame. And yet you have Israel feeling the shame of the law, trying to get rid of it, trying to work their way. If I just be a good person, then I'll feel better about myself. I'll feel loved. And all these things. And God's like, no. There's another verse that says we fall on that stone and we allow ourselves to be crushed. In other words, we surrender our life to the crushing of God so that he might resurrect us. 1 Peter 2.8 says they stumble, talking about, again, the stone in Zion, Jesus. They stumble because they disobey the message. They disobey the message. What's the message? For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. That was the promise, child of Jacob to Abraham to Isaac. He gave his one and only son that whoever, anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Yeah, but you just said that if I don't know Jesus, I'm cursed and condemned forever to hell. Absolutely. Well, then doesn't that mean that God sent Jesus and now every, like it's clear that we're, no, God has been saying it for all of eternity that we are condemned and cursed unless he saves us. Unless he comes through, we're in trouble. He just made it really clear in Jesus. <laughs> And his son, then he says, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. I'm not like, you cursed, you're cursed, you're cursed. It's just a simple thing. Do you believe on him or not? And do your actions follow it up or not? Like, it's, it's not hard to figure out. And then he goes on and he says this, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is us. We don't want what's true about our hearts and what's true about us and what we say and what we do to come to light. We want to keep it down. We don't want the light to expose what's really going on in our hearts. For everyone who practices wicked things, there's the word, hates the light and avoids it. Esau hated having to step in the light of his younger brother. And people today hate having to step in the light of Jesus. Submit to him. He's the only way. He's ever, I'll do it on my own, thank you very much. And God's like, you can't. 
You have to step into that blessing, into that light, into that birthright that comes through Christ. And then he says, for everyone who practices this, but anyone who lives by the truth, lives by the truth, the word of God, comes to the light. That's what Jacob kept doing. (laughs) He knew the truth and he kept trying to get to the blessing, get to the light. He wrestled with God. He saw the ladder going up and down, Jacob's ladder. Like he kept... He couldn't get away from it because he saw the light. And then it said, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. I love that. The point of us moving into the light isn't to show off and say, look how bright I am. It's to say, look how great God is. I couldn't save myself. We were in trouble. Esau was cursed. We had a mess in our family. It was a disaster. You don't know what my dad and mom did. We got to just, but man, look at what God's done. Look at how much he's loved us. Look at how much he's cared for us. Look look at that. He still withholds his wrath. Why? We deserve it. Come on, people. We deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God for stupid things I do and say and thoughts I have. And Like, we all deserve it, and God's holding it back. Why? Because he's like, I love you. I've been proving myself. I've been holding back my wrath for so long. But it's coming one day. There's going to come a day when the armies are let loose. He goes on and he says this. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers. Oh, sorry. That's my bad. Go back one more. It says they stumble because they disobey the message and they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, so that what? So that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Well, I thought I was a people because my my daddy was Isaac and he had the promise of Abraham. That doesn't make you a people. It just makes you an Abraham-Isaac guy. If you want to be my people, it means... You surrender to me. You come into the light of my presence. You allow me to show you who you really are and how you are to really be loved and what love really means. You let me do that for you, he says. And I love this because remember, in Malachi 6, he says, the priests have corrupted you. The priests have taught you to despise my name. And they said, how have we despised your name? The priests respond. What? We've been trying to do our best. We're telling people how... Right here, listen, you are a royal priesthood. Our job is to be the right kind of priests when we go out into that world. To not give a message of works, but give a message of grace and how much God loves and that he has armies that he's holding back that are gonna come and and annihilate people and we're concerned for you. We're concerned for the souls of people. We want them to submit to God so that they know him intimately and there's a relationship. Dear friends, Peter says, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents, because of who you are, the love you have as a royal nation, chosen people, like because of what's really true about the love God has for you, I urge you, Peter says, as strangers and temporary residents, this isn't your home, this isn't the promised land. There's a place coming for you. He says, abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. And we just read how Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. For a little earthly desire. He sold it out. My flesh is hungry. I don't care what God says. I'm going to eat what I want. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's people who don't believe. So that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will by observing your good works glorify God on their day of visitation. In other words, remember, you didn't save yourself. There was a day God visited you and asked you to repent and come to him, and you responded. And that person who doesn't seem like they want to know, that seems like they hate you and hate God, just remember, there's going to come a day when God visits them, hopefully on this side of eternity, but if not, it's going to be on the other side. And on that day of visitation, you have to remember who you are and you have to remember why you're living the life you live and you have to do it because your heart is just like God's. It's for others, not for yourself. 
It's for the people that will come after you, not for the game and the soup you have in front of you. Malachi 5, I go back because this is what God said to them. When he talked about Jacob and Esau and Esau's curse, he said, your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. The Lord is great even beyond us. It's not about us. The Lord is great to the ends of the earth. Like, he's, he's great and awesome, even in the midst of devastation. It just proves that he is the God who is, has all authority. And isn't it amazing he didn't make it worse? That's the beauty of this. And he says, your own eyes will see it. And you will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders. Listen, that's what Peter was writing about. He was saying, look at what God has done. The Gentiles, those who are far from God are coming to him. Isn't our God great? And that's what we're to do. You see, they weren't looking to get something because they recognized, I have it all in him. I have the blessing. I don't need to look for what I can get. Oh, oh, how he has loved us. Let me ask you this morning. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God truly loves you? That he truly cares for you, even in the midst of the consequences of your sin, even in the midst of the brokenness, even in the midst of the mess, that God has you here this morning because he's still trying to say, I love you. I want you to know me. I want you to see what blessing really looks like and love really looks like and what relationship really looks like. And, and so I have you this, here this morning and I want you to know that I don't change. I, I don't have like a different kind of love in the Old Testament that I do in the New Testament. It's the same love, same God, hasn't changed. I'm not gonna have like change my idea of love and justice just because things are bad. I don't change. I'm consistent always and forever. And when you understand that, listen, there's real peace in that. It's like when you go to grandma's house, you know it's not going to change, right? She's like 80. She doesn't move furniture anymore, right? You're going to walk in. It's going to be real comfortable. You're like, oh, I remember. Oh, look, there's a little game I play. Oh, look, it's, oh, I just love sitting right here on grandma's chair. It's the same chair that's been here. They just keep putting pillows on it to stack her up. Like, I mean, that's... Literally, that's what you do. You walk in and there's this comfort of the familiarity of the relationship. Listen, we live in a world that's constantly changing. We can't depend on grandma because she's going to die. Somebody else is going to buy her house and renovate it and move all our stuff out. Doesn't mean we don't love her. Doesn't mean we don't care for her. It just means that she's not our savior. God is. His presence, his place not what I want, but what he wants. And so we say, God, when he says to you, I love you and don't change, I pray that this morning, that this week, your response would be, thank you. I pray that your response would be, God, I'm going to take some time to thank you for your love. I'm going to take some time to say you're great. I'm going to take some time to say you, you have put me as a part of the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Man, I am grateful. I'm just going to take some time to do that, because you don't change. And even though it seems like everything's changing all the time and people are coming and going and the world's in chaos, man, I know I can trust your love and I know you don't change, and so I'm coming back to you. And you can say, instead of how have you loved us, you can say, let me tell you how you've loved us. I want to tell you how much you've done for me. I want to say to the rooftops how great you are. Because listen, we got Christians running around who don't know how to do that. Can I just tell you that if you're not a believer, if you're struggling with whether this God is real that we read about this morning, who's really honest with his people, can I just tell you that God has the same message that he gave to Jacob and Isaac and Esau and Peter and Paul and everybody we read about, and that message is simple. He says, I love you. I don't change. I want you to know me. Just ask me to come into your life. Just admit, I'm a mess. I'm in a disaster. You're good. I'm not. I realize that you have all your wrath that could come on me and you're withholding it. And I, I admit that. And I'm just so grateful that you tell me that you're going to keep that back and you want a relationship with me. I'm in. 
You could surrender this morning. You can ask Jesus to become, you ready for this? The fulfillment of your judgment. See, God didn't change his judgment standards. He put his judgment on his son for you. He completed judgment so that you don't have to be judged. There is no other religion on the face of the planet that says that. Not a one. That's how much God loved us, and he planned it from the beginning of Genesis. The Trinity agreed, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're going to do this for these morons. <laughs> we're going to do this thing. We're going to love them. We're going to care for them, and they're not going to be morons anymore. They're going to be our children. This is going to be awesome. Well, what about the ones that reject? Yep, we'll take care of that too, but man, I'm, I'm in it for the ones that respond. I'm in it for the ones that are changed. I'm in it to see that happen, and you can be a part of that you don't know God, just know that God is like Jacob, getting ready to give you his blessing, but you don't have to steal it. God is there, and you're going to come in, and you don't have to dress up. You don't have to put on hair. You don't have to pretend. You can walk right in and say, Dad, is there still a blessing for me? And he's not going to say no. He's going to say for every person that comes in, there is a blessing for them, because my resources are inexhaustible, and I love you. That is incredible, people.